Greetings. This episode of the Freedom Plow podcast looks at state takeover and preemption. In recent years, state lawmakers have undermined local governments across the country, especially black and Latino-led cities and school districts. We interviewed Dr. Domingo Morel, author of Takeover, Race, Education, and Democracy, and assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University in Newark. We also interviewed Dr. Megan Wilson, a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago, whose work focuses on public finance, urban development, racial politics, and state and local government. And our last guest is Dr. Harold Love Jr., a state lawmaker in Tennessee, representing Nashville's 58th district and a second generation state legislator. So let me start with you, Domingo. Um, you, you've studied state takeover of public schools, especially in the last uh, or in more recent decades. And can you explain why takeovers seem to have caught steam, particularly in cities where African Americans have gained political power? Yeah, I, so I think uh, to try to understand how takeovers of local schools uh, emerge, uh, you know, I think we have to really go back to the 1970s. I mean, we could we could technically go back uh, to the 1960s. The 1970s is really where it starts to pick up, and this is um, what what winds up happening is uh, you know with the Nixon administration, the the new federalism that they called it, where they tried to you know um, decentralize power from the national government, send it down to the states in response to what was happening at the national level, right, with the civil rights agenda started by, you know, led pr- primarily by uh, Lyndon Johnson at the national level. And as that, as they decentralized power to the, to the states um, in order to combat that, what was happening um, in the cities uh, led to a, a, a response by state governments in, in an attempt to try to curtail the emergence of black power in cities, which had been um, aided in many ways by what was happening at the national level, right? So during the 1960s, uh, these uh, funds were going directly to, to, to from the national government down to cities, bypassing state government. And so by the 1970s, again, with, with Nixon, and then it really picked up with Reagan in the 1980s, that they're trying to deal with, with this, uh, with this growth of, of black political empowerment in cities, particularly the funds that are going directly to the cities. And while uh, this era of new federalism is really seen as, uh, has typically been seen as um, a decentralization of power from national government to state government, what winds up happening as well is the centralization of power where state governments start to take away control of uh, historically, traditionally, local governance issues, schools being the top one. And, and schools become an important kind of like battleground because by the 1970s, 1980s, funding starts to decrease for localities, but the one area where funding increases is uh, education, uh, public education at the local level. And this is primarily because uh, essentially black communities and communities of color at the local level are demanding more resources, going to the courts to demand more resources for their schools, and they start to win. And so so what we get is uh, a growth of 
state power uh, led primarily by uh, you know conservatives, uh, Republicans at the state legislature and governorships in tandem with uh, these kind of conservative organizations that grow in the 1970s. We're familiar with them today, like the American Legislative Exchange Council, Cato Institute, and so forth. And, and so it becomes increasingly conservative at the state level, and they start to, uh, again, uh, start to take over um, kind of responsibilities or governance over traditionally local issues, again, school being one of them. And so takeovers as a policy uh, starts to pick up in the 1980s, but it's because of the groundwork that was kind of established in the 1970s as a response to uh, what's happening in cities, primarily the growth of black power. Um, You make an interesting argument, I think, um, that basically we often um, sometimes buy into certain tropes that take over as a response to um, political apathy or dysfunction, but you make an argument, at least as it relates to African Americans, that takeover occurred when when um, black political empowerment and really black activism um, were actually um, um, pretty salient um, in many of these areas. And, and I remember reading about your the story of Newark, New Jersey, and you attending a meeting and you're saying that, yeah, a lot of people are here at this meeting and people are saying, we usually have more. And so explain how takeover is really a response to black agency or black political agency, one might argue. Yeah, so the story gets told, and it's in, you know, Newark where I spend most of my time doing casework, but looking at other places as well, you know, the story, the dominant narrative is that takeovers happen because local communities are not, you know, capable or doing a good job of running their schools so that there's, you know, some sort of inefficiency or corruption or something like that and that's where takeovers emerge as a result of that but actually the the data is pretty clear on this that takeovers don't happen uh you know and i look at the like the early period of takeovers between 1980s and early 2000s in order for uh, a state to take over a school district they have to pass a law that allows them to take over these schools and the laws that allow states to take over local school districts only start to emerge once communities are successful in uh, getting funds through the courts. And so if you don't get essentially two major factors here, one, black political empowerment in cities, uh, and those cities essentially gaining resources through the courts. If you don't have those two conditions, you essentially don't have takeovers in the 1980s and 1990s all the way throughout the early 2000s. Again, this is the, what I call the incubation period. And and so I think that the, the story that we need to be, uh, what it really emerges in, in, in my view and based on the research is that for a long period of time, uh, historically marginalized communities have been fighting for better schools. And it's precisely at the moment when they start to get the resources that they need to improve their schools that takeovers emerge as an option. And so that they never really get a chance to uh, govern their schools, get the resources that need to govern their schools because it's precisely at this time where states start to become uh, increasingly interested in passing takeover laws and actually taking over school districts. And so that's a very different narrative than the dominant narrative that folks are 
uh, schools must be taken over because people are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, where in fact, it's actually people mobilizing to do, to get the, the, the resources that they need in order to be able to educate their children. And that's what leads to a takeover. Okay, thank you, thank you. Um, this is an interesting um, segue to Megan's research, which looks at the financial takeover of cities in Michigan. And Megan, can you tell us what that process looks like and what, what, what was the main driving force behind that, particularly in the last uh, six or seven years? Well, so in the, I, I take all of what Domingo was saying as, as, as a norm, but uh, I think you and I have talked about this previously. I think it's a little different when you think about municipal takeovers from school takeovers, right? And so it is, it definitely is a reaction to the black empowerment. But I, I think that there's something a little bit more in the nuance of like, how are we actually talking about the ways in which cities are, are dealing in the global market? And I think that that's part of what happens in, in at the municipal level is that there's a, a question of efficiency that the state says, hey, this entity is not as efficient as we would like it to be. It is not producing and it is accumulating debt at a rate that it cannot sustain. Um, and that is not to say that, that emergency management or takeover is ever justified, but it becomes this story of like, can you actually deal with the debt load with the current cash flow that you have right now, right? And I think that is that's part of the story that I think we don't look at when we when we look at schools because schools don't have to run in the same kind of efficiency markets that cities do. Um, and so what what I find is that it's a it's a story of looking for institutions, especially municipal institutions, to become more efficient financially and shed off some of the debt and reshape and reimagine what these institutions look like and open it up to a market that is probably not free or fair but is more lucrative and efficient for the stakeholders currently does that make sense yeah, absolutely. So, can you so can you give us uh, an example? I know you looked at uh, Detroit. I'm not sure if you looked at Flint. Can you give us an example of how that plays out in real time? So, so yeah. So in Detroit, um, Detroit had 21 billion dollars in debt, and they had a cash flow that could not sustain that because, and they continued to take out more and more debt, right, in order to deal with their their current iteration of like what they were trying to produce for the city. And the state saw this debt load as something that they would have to take on. And, and you can see it in the school district too, but the state saw this as something they would have to take on that they would, that they needed to find a way to help. This is, it was an altruistic thing in how they articulated it, but it was definitely a racial domination thing in the way that it played out. Um, so the rhetoric did not match the actual intention. But in Detroit, it was, hey, we would like to help this city and if you listen to the or read the transcripts of what the legislators were saying is that they were trying to help because Detroit couldn't sustain itself anymore. It didn't have the kind of financial capital to actually remain a viable city. Um, and we can see this through everything that people are saying now about how Detroit came back because of after the bankruptcy. And it was and so just the same way that, that it is in corporate bankruptcy is 
if we're trying to produce the most efficient cities. Um, and I and I do agree with you, Domingo, in saying, hey, this is really about racial domination, but we don't like to talk about that, and we just mask it in efficiencies. And so what, what my work says is that, hey, yes, it is masked in efficiencies. It is definitely racially dominated, but in Detroit, it is, they actually did have to get rid of debt. Like, there was a real issue of you don't have enough cash to, to sustain your current debt load. You cannot provide the services that you need. And so, and a real-time example is that Detroit had um, all of this debt and could not pay its bills. And so they, they began to default on, on to their guarantors, and that became a problem for the market, and for the larger market. And that, that, that was a threat to what the Michigan market looked like, what how their credit worthiness and what the future of the city would be. Well, the mandate for taking over Detroit, and I think was I think Ben Harbor maybe um, was also targeted. Was, yeah, was Ben a, Harbor, Ben Harbor, Flint, Allen Park, um, Atlanta, Royal Oak Township. There were thirteen cities, most of which were predominantly black. Cities. One argument is is um, that someone might make is that. Um, and and I lived in a I lived in D.C. in the late 1990s uh, when we were taken over by mid 1990s I believe when we were taken over by an emergency management we called it we called it the control board as it was called officially. One argument is that as a way to regain local power, the the emergency management system that takes over or the state legislature is going to mandate certain reforms such as neoliberal reforms or privatization. Or market-based reforms, um, and is that what you found also in Detroit and other places? And that may mean layoffs, yeah. layoffs, uh, efficient, efficient government, those kinds of things. Oh yeah, of course. Like there, there are definitely layoffs. The institution that is now Detroit that that everyone sees as a semi-thriving city is not the institution that it was pre-bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. They they really right size that's the language they use they made the government a lot smaller because they felt that was the most that was the way to make it the most efficient um and so of course there there are neoliberal adjustments that are rooted in in racial domination um but it the institution is different they they created an entirely new kind of city mm-hmm. that that doesn't have that doesn't provide the same kind of goods and services that it used to provide, right? So there were certain, you could go and you knew who your tra- who closed your trash because it was the city. You knew who that was. You knew who got your recycling. You actually knew everything. And now there are larger bureaucratic checks on it, but the city is not the service provider in the same way that it used to be, right? So it's all about privatizing and finding the cheapest and most, most efficient way to provide this service and the city is just the mediator in that which means that they do it cheaply they have less jobs the city is not the largest um employer anymore and and that creates a a different kind of institution in a different way that people engage with the institution and i think if i could just uh, add one thing to that so i think uh it's important to try to understand you know so so what uh, Megan is describing is is how the 
how the state is responding to the debt that Michigan, I'm not sorry, that Detroit and other cities in Michigan have incurred. And, and so efficiency becomes a way to try to deal with this, you know, downsizing and all these kinds of things. But what we have to understand is that the state is behind the conditions that led to this, right? So the disinvestment that happened in cities, the, um, the white flight, which is, you know, supported by state policies, things like Milliken Bradley, right, which is yeah. based in mm-hmm. Michigan. So these kinds of factors are state produced. And and um, as a result, to, you know, to racism, to again the black politics, the the, the emergence of black power in cities, these things uh, are aided by. You know, so so the factors that uh, that Megan is describing down the road are aided by many of these state policies, you know, dating back to the 1960s, 70s, and even in some cases even before that. Yes, I mean. I, I think that that's definitely a part of the, that's part of the story, but they were also done in collaboration, at least in, in a city like Detroit, if we think about state revenue sharing, there were promises made by the state that the state just didn't have the, the opportunity to, or they, they didn't have the power to hold up, right? So there was, there was an agreement on a 10-year state revenue sharing promise made under Engler that the Detroit City Council approved of and it they approved of it and they the the state legislature actually doesn't have that power. That the the revenue sharing is adjusted by the legislator at the end of the term. You can't make a ten year contract, right? Like that was that was also the politicians in the city and I'm and this is not me blaming the city at all. Don't don't take it that way. But there was due diligence that needed to happen on all sides. And the state is definitely corrupt and definitely knew what they were doing in that, right? So you can promise things to people who didn't actually do their full due diligence, and then it becomes a larger problem of now the future future iterations of the people who take over are, are subject to that, right? So one of the major reasons why Detroit went, all of these cities didn't have the proper revenue share, didn't have the proper cash flow was because they didn't get their same state revenue sharing that they thought they were going to get before. Yeah. So it's definitely predicated on what the state is doing, but it was it was definitely done in conjunction with some of the political officials at the at the local level. Yeah. So I don't want to. I, I just don't want to take them off the hook. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, before I turn to Representative Harold Law, I just want to clarify something that Domingo said for the audience. And, and Milliken v. Bradley is is the the inter- intercounty, if I'm not mistaken, um, desegregation case that was the flashpoint of a lot of the, the conversations. Correct, Domingo? Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. so you know, uh, the state supreme court in Michigan tried to do something about. Um, desegregation they understood that you know they couldn't come up with a desegregation plan within the city of michigan alone because that in itself wouldn't have done anything and so it needed to be a more um uh natural type of desegregation where folks can go into the suburbs and um that was struck down by the supreme court and which you know gave the license to continue you know kind of white flight and um you know, you know, continued segregation in, in not only in Michigan, of course, but throughout the country. And so that, you know, that's that's a state-based um, 
policy okay. that, that promoted. Yes. Okay. I'm going to return to this issue of where Detroit and Newark and, and other cities sit within the kind of global marketplace in the 21st century. Um, but let me ask uh, Representative Harold Love, are you still with us? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Representative Harold Love, um, you witnessed the variation of state intervention, uh, what is typically known as the preemption of uh, local initiatives. That is that when uh, a local government or municipal government or county government, whether it be Shelby County, Memphis, Nashville, passes a policy, um, the state legislature comes in and either overturns it entirely or at times makes adjustments to it or even threatens to make an adjustment to it, which can also um, uh, change the direction of the conversation. So explain from your experience um, what are some of the challenges with, with preemption and give one or two examples that um, have occurred um, when under when you've been in the legislature. All right, thank you. Uh, first, let me say this: there is a understood uh, rule that uh, we're not going to pass legislation that only affects one city or county unless that local government has requested it. And when I say it's understood, uh, it's based upon a respect for that particular member's district. For example, if a local business wants a law changed uh, to affect them out of respect for the member in whose district that business is residing, other members will uh, let that member carry the bill or at least if they've been contacted by that business and they're carrying that bill, that member then is asked to sign on to that bill, right? And so what we do out of respect for each other, say the business owner may live in, in your district, Dr. Franklin, but his business may be in my district, right? And out of respect for me, uh, you may contact your state rep, but your business is in my district, okay. right? And then that extends to local government also, which is why we oftentimes say we don't need uh, representatives from other counties passing legislation that affects Nashville, that affects Memphis. Uh, if we don't bring it, then it should not be brought. And what we've seen from time to time is that the state has decided to pass, as you said, laws after a local government has enacted something. And in some cases, pass laws after the people of the local government by referendum have uh, requested or enacted an ordinance. And in some instances, the state preemption comes because they think that the local government is going to pass ordinances. And just in the past seven years I've been here, I've seen that uh, the people of Nashville, in an effort to try to increase the number of local workers that are on construction sites in Nashville, have said, on a very narrow focus, only uh, state, or rather, rather, only local government building projects, not private, but local government building projects require a 40% local high provision. Not 100%, not 70, not 80, not 60. What they were saying was, we would like to see that if the, if the city of Nashville sponsors uh, a building project, then 40% of the persons hired should be from Nashville. It made sense, it made sense to us in Nashville, and the people in Nashville, by referendum, voted for that. 
my colleagues and the legislature felt as though that would be bad for business. Uh, it would be a bad signal to send to other states and they might also enact legislation to prevent us from coming there. My point to them was, that still leaves us 60% of the work, right? And it's not for all jobs, just for the government building projects. We passed legislation that reversed that particular local hire provision. Uh, a few years back, there was a desire to uh, have affordable housing provisions put in that would say that if a developer was going to build some housing, they had to include affordable housing units also in order to get better development rights. And this is just in Nashville, right? It wasn't in Williamson County, but what happened was uh, the representative from Williamson County then brought legislation to make that illegal. So even though Metro government was trying to take care of its citizens by saying, when you knock down one house, uh, if you build back one, uh, you got to also build back another one, some other place that includes provisions for affordable housing. Knocked that down. And then most recently, as you're familiar with, our community oversight board, where again, the people voted, right, to have this particular oversight board approved. Uh, state government chose then to tweak and pull out of some provisions of the community oversight board. So... What, what complicates matters in, in Tennessee, and I think a lot of um, southern states, is that the legislative calendar um, is very short. Let's say, for example, compared to a 10-month legislative calendar in California. And so some of the preemption bills that are being advanced um, are being advanced initially in secret, and they're being then submitted into the calendar or a week before the deadline. So... In a, in a four or five month legislative le, legislative session, um, when it comes to preemptions fight, it, it appears that the playing field is automatic, automatically stacked in favor of those lawmakers who are advancing preemption bills um, in a short shortened t- uh, timeline. Um, so how does that? How does the legislative um, culture of Tennessee, for example? assist preemption bills, particularly as they attack the larger cities such as Memphis and Nashville? Yeah, the, the, the schedule for the legislature from January to April uh, assists preemption because we have a short window for bills to be passed and depending upon the, the culture of the legislature, which you may find to your point, not only are bills filed before the deadline, but sometimes bills are filed in your face and you know what they're going to do, but because you don't have the numbers on a committee to stop the bill, it goes through committee, it goes to the House floor, and it passes very swiftly. And that's one of the problems we have is, is that the interest groups that are affected by these bills oftentimes don't even have a conversation with those members from the Davidson County delegation, Memphis, or the Shelby County delegation. I'm sorry, in Nashville, or the Chevy County delegation in Memphis. Um, this is something that becomes problematic because, again, we have to make sure that the provisions we pass are best for our constituents. But when you have bills that are reversing the local wishes, it becomes problematic. And it's hard to mobilize people, to your point, over a three-month period because the bill shows up. Uh, you may not know what the bill is because it may be a caption bill dealing with something else. 
and and then an amendment's put on that to completely change the bill. But oftentimes it's done up front in your face because they know they have the numbers, and, and it's problematic because the language that's used is very much, uh, and for me, in a condescending tone because I've heard on the House floor more than once members of uh, the General Assembly say things about Nashville in this regard. We created the cities, and they don't have the right to pass laws that are in opposition to state law. And you know, that 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 kind of attitude for me uh, negates the fact that these are adults in these cities voting for things that they want for their city. And I made that point on the House floor when I challenged my colleagues about the Community Oversight Board. I said, the fundamental, uh, one of the fundamental tenets of our democracy is the right to vote. Right? If, if you have the right to vote, you have to decide who governs. And when we take away the right of someone to decide who governs, when you essentially say that even though the overwhelming population of Nashville decided for the Community Oversight Board or decided for the local high referendum, and then you say, well, we don't want you to do that, what you really said is, you don't care about my vote and you nullified my voice. And that for me is the larger problem, is that you're saying to people who ordinarily you want them to vote if you want them to vote for the president or for the governor or for any of us who are elected. But now you're saying, well, we don't want you to vote. For me, it, it, it will even extend to say, uh, who's to say that their election of me won't be invalidated by you if you decide that you want to reverse that election? And, and oversight being the, uh, the referendum that created an oversight board in Nashville to monitor police misconduct, that the state legislature tried to come in and tweak and make some adjustments in order to minimize its influence, correct? Yeah, yeah yes. And, and let me also add, the state, state preemption also oftentimes comes at the request of an industry that knows that regulation is coming, like the tobacco industry went to state legislators, particularly here in Nash, in Tennessee, asking for legislation to to uh, regulate them because they knew that local governments were going to be bringing ordinances the next year and would then be invalid if that's the way they went. And so what you find out that some tobacco companies now, uh, some of these companies dealing with vaping, are seeking state laws to go ahead and, and be passed uh, so they'll want to deal with the local local laws. And my last question for you before we uh, have a, a, a set of wrap-up questions, uh, Representative Love, is the, the context that you're working in and the context I think that you find a lot of states operating in, especially after, after 2010 and 2012, is basically a legislature in which there's a supermajority of Republican lawmakers. Um, and many of the preemption bills that are targeting uh, mid-sized and large cities are advanced by rural lawmakers, um, some of whom live in live in counties or jurisdictions that have less than five or ten thousand people. Can you can you talk about that? Yes, and and, and to that extent, even bills that are not viewed as preemption, but we've been talking about education and and other things today. Also, we just passed a voucher bill that many of us objected to, voted against. And our response to our colleagues oftentimes was, if it's so good, let everybody have it. Pass it for the entire state. But it ended up only being for Nashville and Memphis, where we have the highest population of African-Americans. So sometimes state preemption bills uh, come in the guise also of local
ordinances that weren't passed by local bodies but were passed by state legislatures. So you're really saying the only place you can operate a uh, voucher system is going to be in Memphis and in Nashville. And then you even fund uh, school districts to be able to not have vouchers by keeping them off what we call our priority list. And so our point is that you do find uh, your more conservative legislators uh, voting for bills that seem to reverse, again, this whole premise of uh, local governance. And we keep saying that, that at the local level is, is where the most decisions are made, but we don't allow this to happen. Okay. Thank you. Um, and just the, 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 the few minutes that we have left, I want to ask just a, a round of questions. And the first question I have, probably more so for um, Megan and Domingo, um, so, if, if you have the state takeover, um, what does it do do to uh, black municipal employment um, in terms of um, many African Americans employed in municipal government um, and working class jobs, often um, in some cases uh, mid tier professional jobs? So, what are you finding out in terms of in terms of um, that dynamic? Michael Megan. Yeah, um, I think that in Detroit, at, at least in Detroit and Flint, you can see that really clearly being a, it just gets rid of a lot of jobs that black and brown folks occupy in those spaces. And so you create uh, a class, I think that's the language I want to use, a class of people that are underemployed and searching for work as we find new ways to to make go make government more efficient, um, aka smaller, and not serve all of the people that need to serve. And so I think the the biggest thing is that you you clearly see a loss in jobs, and we can see that in in the black cities that have been taken over, unemployment has gone has gone up drastically, and and they haven't recovered. So we can we see all of these new numbers about employment in places like Detroit because of the resurgence of of private investment unemployment goes up but black black i mean unemployment goes down uh but black unemployment skyrockets during that time just because the people that you're bringing in because people are flooding into the city the people that you're bringing in are not the people who were there and so black and brown folks are losing their jobs and they don't have because they've been in these positions for so long and it's hard to translate to up to the private market it there's no space for them and so a lot of people have to find other ways or they take jobs that are below their credentials because of that um so that's that's what i saw in michigan uh, i i assume that that would be the same thing or a similar thing in new jersey Domingo. yeah so i mean across the country really we see takeovers happening um of school districts it usually leads to, you know, um, people losing their jobs. I mean, part of the reason why you have takeovers is because the state is not agreeing with how the money that is being spent in these cities and the local uh, government actors, whether it's the school board or, you know, the superintendents or city council mayors, they're not trying to um, fire people. And, you know, so part of the justification for the takeover, you know, not expressed in, in the rhetoric, but in action, 
is to cut jobs. And so one example is like in New Orleans, after the takeover, you know, you have thousands of people who lose their jobs. Many uh, black teachers from New Orleans prior to the takeover, uh, which happened, you know, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, had one of the largest, if not the largest, black teaching force in the country. And within a 10-year period, essentially, uh, the, the black teaching force goes from um, 75% to less than 50%. And then, but it's just not teachers. We see across the country as well. Um, you know, it's like a bus attendants, cafeteria workers, people that represent the working class in these cities that get jobs through the school system, they lose jobs as well. So it happened in Newark, it happened in Detroit, it happened in New Orleans, it happened in many other places. And so, yeah, that's clearly one of the effects. And one of the other things, too, related to what uh, Megan was saying, particularly a, re a particular relevance in Detroit and some of these other places, is it's not just that folks are losing their jobs and they're being unemployed, but there's a huge pension crisis as well. So for those who had work, you know, and work in municipal government, they're having a, uh, a hard time being able to get the pensions to be able to, you know, pay for it, you know, their, 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 their cost of living. And so, you know, Detroit emerges out of bankruptcy and people don't have the same type of income that they had uh, prior uh, prior to that bankruptcy. So this is also something that's very important to, to pay attention to. Okay. Well, well, just to, to piggyback on that, I think that is one of the biggest things that, that is often overlooked in, in the, some of the work that, that we both do, and I know Domingo, you have a project on this, I talk about, about it further in the manuscript, is that a lot of the rhetoric around this bankruptcy was to, to just get rid of some of the pension liability. And that's what that's what a lot of these emergency management state takeovers are meant to do, is to shut off that debt. Because a lot of that is pension underfunding, um, under, uh, uh, healthcare for pensioners not being funded all of that is just the way that we take over is a, the, the reason that they take over is a way to get rid of some of that debt load um, which is in, extremely unethical if I can just like make a normative assessment it's, it's an unethical way to do it um, and it, it forces people to really take stake in what the institution is meant to do and what kind of good it's supposed to provide and it, it makes people not trust the government anymore because you can't even if you do get a good a good city job that's what that's what they would say all the time oh yeah i had this good city job and now i lost my pension then you now you can get that good city job but you have lost so much of what your pension was worth because of the way that the that these emergency management and takeovers were negotiated um, and even in the school district in Detroit, because Detroit schools were taken over as well, the teachers were laid off every summer, and, and all of them didn't come back every year, right? Like, they weren't guaranteed, guaranteed a job when they were under emergency management, um, just because the emergency manager had that right, right? So it takes away a lot of the collective bargaining rights that, that these stakeholders or these employers, employees used to have. So a question for... Um, anyone could take this question. So how do people resist? How do folks if, counter this, whether it be preemption by state legislatures or takeover by state governments? What are some of the ways in which um, local officials, state officials, and activists are trying to at least counter um, at least the more adver adverse parts of this, of this process? Revolution. <laughs> 
Well, I think uh, this. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I was going to say, Domingo, you, you you talk a lot about this in your work, uh, so I'll, I'll defer to you, and then I'll give you what I saw. Yeah, I just just real briefly, some of the things that I think you know we need to be doing is paying more attention to state politics state election i think uh, that has been missing throughout and we we obviously focus on national politics and to some extent local politics and state politics gets ignored so we need to pay more attention to that uh we need to uh build coalitions among cities so like michigan is a perfect example where you have like the detroit flint pontiac span harbor and so forth that they need to mount collective uh action as cities and not only just cities, but metro regions to try to kind of combat what's happening at the state level. And as uh, Representative Love was talking about, there needs to be a lot more interest group mobilization. And so folks not just in like, you know, have interest in Nashville, but they also coalescing with folks that have interest in Memphis and things like that. So interest groups around city issues. And then finally, I think uh, one, one avenue as well is to think about how how the feds can step in to provide some protections. I know this is, you know, in this moment with this Justice Department, <laughs> with these agencies, it's probably not not fruitful, but thinking about a long-term strategy, obviously looking at the federal government to, because it is part of the Constitution to have, you know, uh, you know civil rights protection, 14th Amendment protections that um, appealing to the national level for support. So these are some things that I think we're going to be thinking about. If I can add to it, and I appreciate that, that uh, information, I add to this, that we have to find ways to uh, get more support to state-level elected officials who are engaged in trying to push back against this. The National Black Caucus of State Legislators meets every year in various places, depending upon where the meeting's going to be. But oftentimes what we found is uh, the support level uh, for those officials, to your point, is not where it is for our federal um, congressional black caucus members or for our local council members because that that's where people think that the action is, either because the metro council is close to them or the city government is close to them or the federal government because they're so visible, right, that they think that that's where the action is. But they forget about the fact that it's that state-level piece that's so critical because in addition to state preemption, it's the state houses that redraw congressional lines. It's the state houses that draw these other lines when after the census. So there's so much power in that position. And oftentimes our African-American legislators don't have the resources to, to uh, mount effective campaigns against preemption along with those who are gonna be uh, leading the revolution because they get inundated with so much other stuff. Many of us don't have staff. Uh, we don't have those resources. So I think if we can find ways to partner with that and also find ways to utilize the resources that our HBCUs, here particularly in Nashville, Tennessee, I must give credit to Justin Jones and, and Janisha Harris and those students from Fisk and Tennessee State who embarked on a historical uh, effort to take down Nathan Buffett Force bust and as a result we're not going to have to elect a new speaker because of some things that we found that he was doing to them and these are the kind of efforts where we must find ways to work collaboratively with our uh, groups outside of government and our state elected officials to combat this thing and, and bring more pressure to bear on uh, our colleagues who are taking these things in the wrong direction okay uh, uh 
I, I was very curious about revolution, right? Uh, because I, I think I, I think that all of that is really important, and and you know I'm, we're political scientists, so it's, this is kind of we believe in the power of the institution. But I do believe that we need outside pressure to force these institutions to be accountable and to force serious accountability within them. And so I think that that the work has has been doing in cities, especially like black cities, thinking about Chicago, thinking about Oakland, uh, and, and Detroit. Let me not discount the work that they're doing in Detroit. And who is this group? I, I think the, uh, the Movement for Black Lives Matter. Movement for Black Lives, Matter, black lives yes, absolutely, the, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there, there are tons of radical organizations and activists that are doing this work on the ground, and I think that we need to, to give them some more visibility because they are doing that. So we can work in tandem with state legislatures, legislators, and and local officials. And I I think that all of that is a part of the story. But I, I do believe that we have to start putting pressure on some of these elected officials. And I do think that the coalition of cities and understanding and coalition and bringing together their power would be really productive and generative. But I think that we actually need to force ourselves at the table um, to have generative conversations around what we want our cities to look at look like and I think reimagining what they can look like that spaces are important and I think you can only get through that not through a reformist attitude but through revolution uh, and that's not I'm, I'm not an anarchist please don't think that but but I do think that there needs to be some kind of aggressive accountability tactic. Yeah, now, uh, that's just, so like, in many of our black districts, like, take my yeah. district, for instance, I have four HBCUs, but the greater population of people who come out and vote are non-black members, right? And, and so there has to also be some cover given to black elected officials when we go out here and press these, this case. Uh, to get our folks out to vote. And that's why I want to go back to this whole piece of we, we got to find a way to re-energize people to understand the power of their vote because they may be able to even influence people in other parts of the state to get their elected officials to vote in a way that's, that's, that's productive and, and not going to be against uh, local governments when they're trying to pass good things for our people. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and just briefly, I you know, just to add to and support what has been said already, uh, and particularly the comments that Megan was making now, I mean, just to go back to Newark, um, again, it's the, the place where I did most of my work for, for my book on takeover. Um, the reason why the city, the schools are no longer under state control is because young people went to the streets and did much of what um, Megan was describing now. And they you know, started off small and it grew. I mean, they shut down major highways in Newark. They took over administrative buildings, the, the, the uh, central office, um, did you know, a couple of walkouts at schools and to put pressure on state government to, to respond to them. And so that's absolutely part of the strategy, must be part of the strategy, absolutely. Okay. Because, because voting, voting doesn't always work. And we saw that in Detroit, right? Like the, the, the people in Michigan voted against emergency management as a tactic and it still passed, right? Like it still went through the house again and was signed by the governor, governor 
in a new legislator and they just, I mean, in a new legislation that they just put a, an, uh, a fund, they just put funding on it to say like, oh yeah, this is now the reconciliation. And that's just not, that's not fair because the people in Michigan decided they, that they did not want this to happen. They went out and voted. There were tax, there were actual, there was activism around it and they went out and voted and it still happened, right? So I think that there has to be, and that, that's not, that's not to undermine uh, well, Representative Love is saying because voting is important. I'm a political scientist. Voting is important. I need everybody to vote. It's within this next election. That's my plug. I'm sorry. But it, it's definitely important that we continue to put the pressure and hold everyone accountable because even when you vote, sometimes these institutions don't take those votes seriously and they still do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And so accountability has to happen in the street. Yeah, I think part of the reason that that the voting is not taken seriously is that we have uh, persons who, who vote in one election and they don't get the result that they want and they don't come back. And I'm speaking as one who, I lost my first three elections. And I, I want to lift it up in light of my father having served in office for 26 years. I lost my first three elections. I have folks who voted for me the first time and I had to convince them the second time, come back again and vote, right? And the third time, come back again and vote. And finally the fourth time won. Uh, and, and so I almost got apathetic. I almost got discouraged because I saw the numbers and our folks wouldn't vote. And I kept saying to my friends, listen, I know you didn't get the results you wanted, but that's the whole point. They want us to be discouraged. You've got to keep on showing up, keep on showing up. And so I think as we have the revolution in the streets, as we have, also in committee meetings, oftentimes we don't show up in the committee meetings when these bills are being voted on. And I've seen, you know, I, I'm saying, when I say show up, I mean like, we'll show up one, two or three people, but I've seen instances where if you pack the committee meeting uh, more than just once, you let them folks know that you're serious about this and you're going to vote them out. I think that's one thing we're also going to do is if we make that statement, we've got to be serious about it and make the commitment to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the last thing I'll say about it and then we'll, we'll close out is um, re- referencing a work by uh, Daniel Gillen from uh, UPenn. Um, he, he makes the argument, and this might be helpful for this discussion, that um, at times mobilization works especially if it's in district so in a lot of these uh, states you find that grassroots folks are mobilized um, at the legislature um, yet the state lawmakers that are passing preemption laws or takeover laws go back home and there's no mobilization there so so I think what Gillen is arguing at least as it pertains to congressional election, congressional districts is that m- maybe tweaking some of our mobilization in terms of targeting districts that that many of these rural lawmakers are coming from because oftentimes some of their policies and and high intensity mobilization protests as well because oftentimes some of these rural some of these lawmakers are passing laws that affect their constituents but their constituents just don't know it um does anyone have any comments about that well i think we got to be aware also that that a good number of our congressional delegations come from state legislatures, right? And so people get emboldened to think that if they can rail against uh, people that they'll promote them to a high level office. And, and the constituents don't know. I mean, look at the Affordable Care Act. People who needed health care voted against the Affordable Care Act because they labeled it Obamacare. Uh, people who don't need these uh, restrictions on um, uh, 
things with, with the COB don't realize, hey, you're voting against your own interests. Yeah. Yeah. My my last question, and, and it's particularly for, I think, um, uh, practitioners of urban politics, and I got this really reading your, your, your work, Domingo, is it, it's, we have to almost think about another way of studying urban politics with this new state centralization. And so... Um, is, is this what you're saying too as well in some of your work uh, Megan, Domingo that maybe our basic assumptions about urban politics and local politics that that some of us um, studied really in the last several decades have to be reoriented given this new state, state centralization approach that we've seen in the last decade or so a couple decades yeah so I mean I think uh, two parts to that answer. The, the first is that, you know, the way that we have, uh, you know, historically uh, conceptualized, conceptualized uh, urban politics needs to be re-examined. You know, so I try to do that through this work and there's others who Megan doing it through her work and others doing the same. And so we really need to think about, you know, urban politics really being um, uh, more of a broader politics because particularly in this example here, how state politics are just such an important part of understanding what's happening in cities. But the second part of the answer is that we also need to reimagine um, what it's going to look like in the future. The reason why we get preemption is because states are responding to what's happening in cities, particularly in that, you know, the work that I do, uh, looking at how 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 black political empowerment and everything that came with that forced this type of reaction at the state level and so it's 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 uh these conservative forces and the, the counter forces finding out where they can leverage their power and so this is a continuation as part of american politics is wherever they're going to find power that's where they're going to go and so today it's in state preemption, tomorrow it might be something else. And so we need to continuously think about that and, you know, particularly if we're interested in kind of mobilization, not only, at, you know, with, with the groups, but at the, you know, city council level, at the mayoral level, at the state legislature level, the congressional level, and so forth, thinking, continuously thinking about where is, where's power going? How can we affect that? And how does that, um, how does that, uh, uh, in some ways, um, what type of analysis is needed for that, right? And so it's a continuation. It doesn't stand still, and I think that's an important part of, of what we need to be understanding here as well. Okay. Okay, well, um, I learned a great deal from this conversation, and I want to thank you, uh, um, Dr. Megan Wilson, Dr. Domingo Morrell, and Dr. and State Representative Harold Love. I think the audience will gain a lot from your wisdom and I think it also offers some insight for those individuals who are also outside of the academy and um, in terms of activism and and political pressure so thank you for joining us thank you thank you thank you, thank you for having us